Our text for this morning is going to be drawn from Daniel chapter 8. So why don't you turn there with me, Daniel chapter 8. Here in Daniel 8, we see another vision, dream that's quite intense and weird, as dreams often are. But Daniel 8 gives us the interpretation of this dream as well. And it's a vision of prophecy given to Daniel. Let's read. It's Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. It says, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass when I saw that I was at Shushan, another name, Susa, in the palace, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in a vision, and I was by the river Ulai. All of this, by the way, is in Iran, modern day Iran. Verse three, then I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram, which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beast might stand before him, neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, behold, a he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between its eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing by the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close to the ram as he was moved with choler or anger against him and smote the ram and break his horns and there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him. And there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore, the he-goat waxed very great and he was strong. The great horn was broken, um, pardon me, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones, horns, toward the four winds of the heaven. Crazy prophecy, weird rams and goats with horns and stuff like that. What in the world's going on? Is this a, a vision from God or just Daniel had some pizza the night before? Which one is it? Well, as it turns out, these are some of the great prophecies of the Bible that God gave to Daniel. And Daniel chapter eight uh, is a, an amazing fulfillment of some prophecies we've already touched on. It's just these different perspectives. Daniel two, Daniel seven, and Daniel eight, all speaking of similar things. In Daniel two, there were the four kingdoms, the Babylonian head of gold, the you know, shoulders of, of, of silver and the chest of silver that was the Medo-Persian empire. And then you had the belly of brass, the Greeks, Alexander the Great, and then the two legs of Rome, the Roman empire. And out of the old Roman empire would come feet of clay and iron and 10 toes. And in the days of those toes, those kingdoms, would the Messiah, Jesus, come and set up his kingdom. And, and we saw that, that first you know, prophecy, Daniel 2. Daniel 7 was from God's perspective. We looked at that last week where it was the beasts uh, that represented Babylon, you know, Medo-Persian Empire, the Greeks, and Rome. But today, Daniel zeroes in even more. 
he zeroes in to the two of the kingdoms. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, in some ways you almost think of Babylon as the most important kingdom. And then we also see as Rome is kind of an important kingdom. But in this case, Daniel focuses in on the two, the Medo-Persian empire and the Greeks. The ram scene here is the Medo-Persian empire. And the description here is quite perfect. Uh, the ram, by the way, is a powerful creature there in the Middle East. When I take our Israel trips to, to um, you know, one of the places we go is En Gedi out in the wilderness where David used to hide away from King Saul. But we almost always see these big ibec, these big rams. And they have these huge horns. You don't wanna mess with these rams. They're giant and they could, they could you know, knock you down easily. Um, uh, they hang on these little cliffs. It's amazing, these little, little hooves and they kinda, it's, I don't even know how they do it. Um, one time I was at the En Gedi Reserve there and um, me and our bus driver were kind of stunned because we were out there just talking and one of those rams had come down from the mountains and went into the parking lot and there was this little fig tree there with a few little leaves on it and so the ram wanted the fig, tree, the fig leaves so he climbed up on this beautiful Mercedes Benz that was, <laughs> I'm not kidding, it was like this pearlescent white Mercedes and this ram just kind of gets up on the roof and then gets up on two feet, two hooves and then reaches up and is like nibbling at the, and, and then he nibble and then he dropped down <laughs> and, and the, 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 the roof of this Mercedes was like denting in and then he'd go back up and then he'd go again and we're like, you know, every time. But, um, uh, these rams, they're big and they're powerful and you don't really mess with the ram of uh, the Middle East there. But that's the image. This ram has these two horns, the Medes and the Persians. And the description is, is quite exact when it says, you know, that the, the first horn came up uh, and then the second horn was higher than the last. In other words, one of them, was they were kind of two horns, but one became bigger than the other, but it, it became bigger at the end. That's exactly what happened. The Medo-Persian Empire, first it was the Medes, they were the most powerful, and the Persians came up later as more powerful than the Medes. Um, and that's a, an exact description. And this Medo-Persian Empire would last for a long, long time and drive, even as it says here, westward, northward, southward. That's exactly what the Medo-Persians did. We saw, uh, you know, Daniel, uh, during the reign of Belshazzar, he lost his kingdom to Darius the Mede. Darius was the guy who took over the city Babylon. And, uh, and then from then, the Medo-Persians would rule and reign for a couple hundred years. Now, all that to say, this prophecy goes then to the Greek empire, which is typified by the goat, um, the goat. Now, one thing we've noticed in these prophecies is the, uh, each, each level gets smaller or lesser. In, the, in the, the statue, it was gold, silver, brass, iron, clay, and iron. There, it was a decreasing, descending order. In the beast, it was a lion with wings, a bear, a leopard, and then just another beast. Descending order. In this case, it's a ram that's big and powerful. And then all of a sudden, this goat comes. A goat. Me. It's like, it's not a big, huge ram. It's just this little goat that comes. But... The goat has a notable horn, a single horn, uh, and it's a big powerful horn. Horn in the Bible is a type of power and authority. So this big horn on this little goat, but also our text tells us this goat touched not the ground. Um, so like Luke Skywalker with his speeder, uh, the goat just comes zooming in uh, with, now what does it mean he touched not the ground? That's actually an idiom of the Jews. Have you ever seen a horse when it's running at its top speed? It almost looks like it's not touching the ground. 
Um, that's, what, that's the idiom of the Jews when they say, and his feet didn't touch the ground. It means that he was moving very speedily at a rapid pace. And so that's the thing. This goat's gonna come in with great speed with this big horn and he's gonna smack the ram and the ram's gonna drop and the goat's gonna become powerful. But then the goat, it says in verse eight, will wax very great. And when he was strong, the great horn will be broken. And then out from that single horn would come the four horns. And that's exactly what happened. As we talked about last week, Alexander the Great is the horn. By the way, Daniel interprets his own thing here. Look at verse 21 of our, of our text. It says, the rough goat is the king of Greece and his great horn is that between his eyes was the first king. Now, when Daniel prophesied this about the Greeks, the Greeks were not even really that big of a power. They were tiny. <laughs> I mean, it, it's almost laughable. I wonder if Daniel's like, Lord, you want me to write Greece? Yep, Greece. Because that'd be like saying, you know, let's say Putin came and attacked and the, the Russians came and attacked the United States. But good news, and we, we, we give a prophecy, the city of Dundee <laughs> will come to the rescue and, 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 and fight for us and fight against Putin and the Russian army. Um, the Dundeeites are gonna come to our rescue. You'd be like, are you kidding? They might have a wine tasting room or something out there, but I don't know about an army. That's exactly the way they would have perceived the Greeks back when Daniel says, and the Greeks, there's an empire coming. There's a, yeah, right. But it's amazing because the Greeks, you know, the Medo-Persian empire in its 200 years, the Greeks started to have skirmishes with them. And there were a few big battles. Uh, some of the battles, you know, Therm Ther Thermopylae and these others, they became big historical events. But eventually the Greeks and the Macedonians would come and say, you know what? We're done with you, Medo-Persian, we're gonna attack. And that was under the leadership of Alexander the Great. So this prophecy is very exacting about the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks. And, and why is that here? Why do we zoom in on these two in Daniel chapter eight? There's a reason. We're gonna dive into that reason uh, in depth on Wednesday night, because these, this, the Greeks and these four generals that we talked about, they're gonna come into play and it's gonna be a picture and pointing us to ultimately a coming world leader that's not the, not the Alexander the Great, it's the Antichrist. And we'll see that on Wednesday night. But there's something about this that I feel like so many of us were robbed because history um, is important. And especially when you have things like this where the Bible foretells the unfolding of history and, and man, so many people don't know their history and they don't realize how amazing the Bible is because they don't know their history. And I wanna share with you a little bit of the story of Alexander the Great. And then I wanna show you how that pertains to this passage that we just read. And then we'll do a little comparing and contrasting. So stick with me, try not to get bored, but I love history, but I'm gonna kind of share some stuff that I think is important. So we're gonna start with this amazing story of Alexander the Great. His father was uh, Philip II or Philip of Macedon. He was a Macedonian. Um, and the Greeks and the Macedonians weren't really mingling as much until Philip and then Alexander would bring that to be kind of the, the, the Greek empire. Um, but Philip, Alexander's father, was the, the one who set the stage for Alexander's great success to conquer the whole world. But there's things you may not have heard in history class. Like for example, when Alexander was a little boy, he used to cry to his mother, Olympias, and say, mom, dad's conquering all the worlds. There's, no, there's gonna be no more worlds for me to conquer if dad conquers them all. 
and he would whine and he became jealous of his dad's success. And he, he, he would, would, would sort of think, I'm, I need to come and dad needs to leave some room for me. You know, and he would whine and complain about his father. Um, that's true. But at the same time, he admired his father for being a great you know, warrior. And, and in some ways, Alexander wanted to be that too. Um, and when he was a little boy, I've already told some of you this story about how you know, he wanted a horse and his dad said, you're not old enough for a horse. So Philip II got his son a slave and said uh, to the slave, be his horse. And literally little Alexander would ride around the house on a slave. The slave's name was Oxhead. And Alexander would ride Oxhead around the house. He literally, history tells us, he'd put a bridle and a bit in Oxhead's mouth and ride him around the living room or the palace or whatever. Poor slave, you kind of feel bad for that guy. Well, at the age of 12, finally, um, Alexander's dad said, okay, let's go get you a real horse. And so they went to the merchant that sold the horse and they found one of the most beautiful horses they'd ever seen. It was extremely expensive, um, this black stallion. And they said, we want that one. And the, the, the merchant said, man, no one in all of Macedonia has been able to tame or break this horse. This horse is, is too spirited, too crazy, too wild. You don't want this horse. And Philip said, okay give me another one. And Alexander said, nope, dad, that's the horse I want. And they, they made sort of a wager, by the way. Um, you know, uh, Philip II, uh, the horse dealer, you know, offers this horse an enormous amount of money. But, um, but, but since no one could temper the animal, Philip uh, didn't want it. Alexander said, dad, if, if you get that horse, we all pay for the horse uh, in time. <laughs> and the dad said, okay, if you can break it, then, then you won't have to pay for it. But if you can't break it, you'll owe me. They made a deal. Well, as it turns out, one of the more amazing things about Alexander is he was able to break this powerful black stallion. And he, guess what his name was? Oxhead. He called the horse Oxhead, the same name of the poor slave that was walking him around the house. Now, some of you are like, Brett, I know history. And Alexander the Great's horse name was not Oxhead. Oh, yes, it was. In the Greek, the word is Bucephalus. And that would be the horse for the next 20 years, Alexander would ride this horse into many battles. And, and the horse of Alexander was almost as famous as Alexander himself. Um, there's even cities named after Alexander's horse, Bucephalus. But be that as it may, also at the age of 12, Alexander, they started a homeschool co-op uh, there for Alexander. Um, and he had a couple of his buddies who would later become one of the four generals, a couple of the four generals. Um, they, they had sort of a homeschool co-op and they hired this teacher, a little dude named Aristotle. Uh, true story, Philip hired Aristotle to be Alexander's instructor. And so he was schooled in all wisdom and knowledge. He was, a, he was actually entering into battle with Bucephalus before he even reached, reached the age of 20. He was known for his prowess in battle, Alexander the Great, um, following his dad, Philip. Now, the thing is, his father, Philip, um, eventually he was assassinated by his own bodyguard. Um, kind of a crazy story. Um, uh, Philip II, they wonder who was behind the assassination. And there's all kinds of speculation in history, but one of the main speculations are this, that Olympias, who was Alexander's mother, now she was a trip. Olympias is one of the most interesting women of all history to study. She had this crazy demeanor. Everybody was totally freaked out by Olympias. Um, she used to walk around with like python snakes going around her neck. 
And she'd walk around in these fancy robes and, and she kind of had this wicked, sort of creepy, like, don't mess with me, I'll put a curse on you and you'll die. And that was who Olympias was, Alexander's mother. Now, some people argue the only reason she did this was not to be Miss Jezebel, wicked lady, but because that was how you survived in those days. Um, you know, if you're the queen mother, you could die very easily because of the way things rolled back in those days. So she put on this persona that was kind of freaked everybody out. And there's even legends of her cursing men and them dropping with a heart attack right at the moment. Like this woman, Olympias, she was a pretty scary woman, but she also loved her son, Alexander. And some people put her actually more um, responsible for Alexander being taken and put right into the throne then when Philip died by the, the sword of his own bodyguard, they believe it was Olympias who was behind maybe the murder of her own husband to make sure that Alexander got into the throne. Speculation, interesting history, but this woman, it, it's, if you know Olympias, you start to understand Alexander the Great a little bit better. Um, what do you mean, Brett? Well, from this point on, Olympias and Alexander, now he's the king at the age of 20. He's the king of Macedon, the Macedonians. And um, as it turns out, you know, a good king in those days, you gotta off all the people that might be a threat to your throne. So Alexander goes around and kills his cousin uh, uh, to make sure his name was uh, Amintus uh, IV. He executed him. He also killed a couple of Macedonian princes that might be, uh, you know, heirs to some kind of a throne. But also um, this woman, Olympias, she actually uh, killed, <laughs> uh, as it turns out, um, uh, she killed Philip's, one of his other daughters from another lady, uh, Cleopatra, Eurydice, and Europa, uh, her daughter uh, by Philip II. Uh, she burned them alive because they were a threat to Alexander's the throne. So this was a tough gig back in those days. Well, Alexander becomes this, this amazing, powerful war general. And after his dad is killed, at the age of 20, he goes on a rampage and he starts destroying Macedonian um, uh, enemies and he starts joining and enslaving people and, and, and becoming more and more powerful. While he was off with his army and uh, fighting battles, there was a local town from Macedonia called Thebes. And the men of Thebes said, who is this punk kid? We like Philip and we don't really think that Alexander's our king. Once Alexander heard word that Thebes was rebelling against his authority, he marched his army straight to Thebes and killed everyone. Everyone in his own hometown, like it wasn't his hometown, but it was one of his Macedonian cities, killed them all, except for he saved the strongest 30,000 of them to sell them into slavery. And he made lots of money off of his own countrymen who were rebelling against him. And, and basically he did this, and you know, you say that's horrible, but tactically, as it turns out, nobody ever rebelled against Alexander the Great from that day forward. It was like after, you know, this, he was a young man at this time, but they said, yeah, we're, uh, oh, hail Alexander the king. You're our man, <laughs> just don't kill us. Uh, that was his reputation from this Thebes battle. Well, after that, he continues to grow and he sets his sights um, on the, the Medo-Persian empire. Just like the Bible says, the big ram, the Medes and the Persians. The one who was in charge at that time, this confuses people, his name? Of, of the, of the Medo-Persians, Darius. Well, Brett, Darius has been dead for a couple hundred years. True, that's Darius the first. We're talking about Darius the third that was during Alexander's reign. He was the enemy that Alexander said, I'm gonna get that Darius the third. And so he starts to attack him. 
Um, and, and Alexander, by this time, he does a whole new form of battle and his tactics are new. Instead of having this huge army of might and power, he takes this really mean and lean, sort of a guerrilla warfare kind of tactic. Um, and he always has a smaller army, but Alexander was known for his swiftness, for being a, a guy who could move his army with great speed and it freaked everybody out. They didn't even know where he was most of the time. And they'd be marching big armies and he'd zip his army behind and take the army from behind and go right into the middle of it. Like it's an amazing um, tactic that Alexander had. And he was able to really conquer the whole world with a very small army. So, you know, with his military prowess, now he's starting to do skirmishes with this, you know, 200 year old world power, the Medo-Persians. And Darius III, he's got a million men in his army. It's like Darius has had one of the biggest armies in the history of the world. And Alexander with this little small army starts just chipping away. And every time Darius, in fact, there's even stories where uh, Darius III caught Alexander's army by surprise. And even still Alexander's army beats back this huge army. And, and Darius runs for his life at that particular battle. Um, and captures Darius's headquarters and captures his wife and his kids. And Alexander, you know, treats them nicely, I guess, as history tells us, but he doesn't let Darius have his wife and kids. And this, this infuriates Darius and he says, listen, you know, um, he writes some letters and says, you need to give me my kids back. And Darius said, listen, if you acknowledge me king over the Medo-Persian empire, then you get your wife and kids back. And he would say, no. So they go into another battle and battle after battle after battle. Well, one of the more pivotal battles between Darius and Alexander the Great was one called Gaugamela in 331 BC, where he had a huge number of troops, Darius did, and, uh, and Alexander came and attacked them from behind, went into the center of his army and, and fought on the way out. And, and Darius ran for his life before the skirmish even got heated. Darius III started getting a reputation for being the guy that runs right out of the gate and he just ran for his life. And it, and it started to become harder for Darius to recruit soldiers. They're like, man, we don't wanna be following a guy that's always running from a little tiny army like the Alexander the Great Army. And so Darius becomes sort of his reputation uh, despite all of his beneficial factors of a huge army and a great military and a world dominance, Alexander comes and destroys the Medo-Persian Empire. And the thing about that is exactly what the Bible says, you know, and then that horn waxed great. After he dominated the Medes and Persians, he just got greater and greater and more powerful. He'd start to meander with his army. He meandered from the Medo-Persian empire up to um, fight the men of Tyre. And you've heard that story where he made a causeway between the mainland and an island and he built that. And it took him a long time up there in Tyre. And we, we talked about that story from Ezekiel. Uh, the prophecy of Tyre, how it became a flat tire. Remember that story? Um, that was Alexander who did that. Well, anyway, after that, the men of Jerusalem started shaking in their sandals because they were next. After Tyre, Alexander was gonna mosey on down south from Tyre and come and crush Jerusalem. That was the plan. But there was a, there was a high priest in Jerusalem named Jedua who had a dream. And the dream was from God, he believed, and, and, and it was this, that you do not need to fear Alexander. Um, he will not conquer Jerusalem. Um, and so Jadua thought, I'm gonna go meet Alexander before he even gets to Jerusalem. So he grabs a scroll uh, of the book of Daniel. 
And he brings it with him and he packs up and goes to the pavilion, the tent where Alexander is staying as he's getting ready to crush Jerusalem. And he goes and talks to, to Alexander and says, Alexander, you need to know this. And what's even more interesting, by the way, uh, history tells us Alexander the Great had a dream that he was gonna see a guy and he had a dream and it was the same guy, Jadua. So, so, so it seems like the Lord was orchestrating this. If, if the dream thing is true, this is not in the Bible, this is extra biblical history. You can look this up in Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, but, but he has this dream and he sees Jadua and then Jadua shows up in his tent. He's like, wow, this is, what a coincidence. And then Jadua rolls out the, slow, the scroll of the, of the scriptures of the Hebrews. And he says, let me read to you a text from the Hebrew Bible. And Alex says, okay, whatever. And he reads Daniel chapter eight, verses one through eight, the text that we just read this morning. And Alexander's like, what? And then he shows, he says, see here, it says that the Greece, this is 200 years ago. The Greek empire will come with a powerful army and a powerful horn, the leader, and will crush the Medo-Persian empire. And you've done that. You've fulfilled our scriptures. And, and, and Alexander was blown away. Say, man, you're God revealed this to you. And this, 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 this is what is interesting. By the way, he didn't read all of verse eight, just part of verse eight. I'll show you that in a second. But upon hearing all this, Alexander relented in his pursuit of Jerusalem. And because of the dream that he had and the scriptures, he said, listen, I'm gonna spare Jerusalem and you guys can just be Jews. Keep your Jewish laws, be Jews. The only thing I'll need from you is, is um, military cooperation. And they agreed. And Alexander bypassed Jerusalem. Of all the cities that he crushed, he didn't crush Jerusalem. Well, then he went down to Egypt, fought the Egyptians, took over Egypt, and he built a city there called Alexandria. And, and then he went to other places. He named 20 cities Alexandria, by the way. There's, there were 20 Alexandrias around the world because Alexander conquered the whole known world at the time. And he, oh, we'll make another Alexandria. So Dundee's everywhere, <laughs> basically. <laughs> but um, um, by the way, there, there's paintings and, and history. This is from 1736, a painting uh, of, of Alexander seeing the book that uh, you know, the, the priest Jadua brought and how he was moved. And you know, these, these paintings of the Renaissance, there's, all, there's wood cut, cutting art and stuff. It's, it's an amazing thing. But then he went down to Egypt from there and he, he really established himself as kind of the world conqueror. There's a statue of Alexander the Great down there and there's a reason why I'll tell you in a minute. But then he, he goes up to Afghanistan. Now, a lot of countries have had a hard time in Afghanistan as it turns out. Alexander did too. Things started to actually go sour for Alexander in, in Afghanistan. And here's why. First thing is he meets this nice Afghanistan girl and he marries her. His wife is from Afghanistan and she gets pregnant. But it was at that time, Alexander started being suspicious of some of his compadres. Some of the guys that fought with him for many years. One of his closer compadres, a guy named Cleotus the Black. He was famous for actually saving Alexander's life in, in a battle at Granicus, which is a whole nother story. But Cleotus the Black was considered to be one of Alexander's most faithful, loyal, uh, companions and friends. But during a, a, um, a violent sort of drunken altercation, uh, somewhere, by the way, in Uzbekistan, 
That's where this happened. Um, Cleotus was, 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 uh, um, was accusing Alexander kind of behind his back of becoming like some of these people that he'd conquered. You see, the Macedonians were menly uh, kind of guys, manly guys, um, but they conquered, you know, some of these others, the Greeks and the, the you know, the, and, and the, some of the more esoteric Persians. And, he, and Alexander, as history says, started dressing more like them. And some of the Macedonians, his, his original friends were like, dude, you're kind of becoming effeminate. That's what they said. Like, you're becoming sort of a girly man. And, and Cleotus is accused uh, as, of, of, of saying that about Alexander the Great. Well, that didn't set very well with Alexander. Another strain in history that you hear is the reason Alexander started to become suspicious of Cleotus is because he thought Cleotus had eyes for his new bride from Afghanistan. So in a drunken party, Alexander says, come over here, Cleotus, give me a hug. And they hug and he pulls out a dagger and stabs his friend in the back and kills him. Um, the reason this is an important part of Alexander the Great's history is this caused a great deal of uncertainty in Alexander's army. Um, up until that point, they had kind of this undying loyalty and would march off a cliff, literally, for Alexander. But at this point, he, he starts to struggle with his troops and regrouping. And, and then he goes on into India and takes, takes on India and wins India, battles against soldiers, the Indian soldiers riding on elephants, kind of a whole other part of history. But eventually, about this time, uh, he starts to want to be worshipped as a god. Isn't it something when a famous person who's powerful or popular starts to believe their press clippings. Alexander's like, yeah, I'm pretty much a god. And, and the Medo-Persian empire had a practice called proskinesis where they would bow down and kiss the feet or kiss the ground of the, of the king because they sort of deified them as gods. And Alexander's like, yeah, I kind of like that. So when he conquered these kingdoms, he made the people bow down and worship him almost as deity. Again, the Macedonian army, they're like, you're no God and we're not gonna worship you. And Alexander had to make a decision. Am I gonna force these guys to bow down and worship me as a deity, which I want, or I risk losing them and their loyalty. And so actually because of this struggle with his proskinesis, trying to make everybody bow down and worship him as deity, he ends up abandoning that plan because his soldiers were saying, we're not bowing down to you. Again, more consternation in the ranks. And Alexander, at this point, he's really conquered the known world. At the age of 33, having conquered Egypt, Northern Africa, all of Europe, um, at least the civilized parts of Europe, he'd conquered all of that. And now all of India, he goes down to Babylon, makes that his capital city. And he realizes as he weeps bitterly, kind of like when he was a child and he was weeping because his dad wasn't gonna leave him any more worlds to conquer. Well, now he's conquered all the worlds. And now as a 33 year old man, he's weeping saying, there are no more worlds for me to conquer. And he's bummed. So he, he thinks, what can I do? And he starts a big party, a drunken party. It was meant to last many days, like 10 days. They were gonna have a, a, a kegger. But in the first night of the party, Alexander gets drunk. Now, this is where history has a huge debate. How did Alexander the Great actually die? And um, there's, there's debate. Probably one of the more common parts is he got drunk 
And then he, he went on the first night of this drunken party, he went outside in the rain and the cold, got sopping wet, freezing cold, came back in as a, in his drunken stupor, went into his, his chambers and said, don't bother me, I don't wanna see anybody. And he goes in there and in his wet garb, he just lays down, oops, lays down and he, and he, and he, and he falls asleep there and gets pneumonia and has a fever. And he's on his deathbed and nobody comes to check in him because he ordered no one to see him. But finally, somebody got the guts, man, we better go check on Alex, man. Let's see how he's doing. So they go in there and he's, on, he's on, out of the verge of death. And so they line up, you know, a thousand of his generals and his commanders, and they walked by to pay their respects to their dying leader. And history tells us he could barely even lift up his hand to sort of acknowledge the guys as they were walking by. But then finally, the few top generals, they bend down and say, Alexander, you're dying. Who is to be the king after you? Who does the kingdom go to? And one of the more famous responses, and it depends on how you translate what he says from the original language, but he basically said, as they're listening, and they're hoping some name, like, you know, so-and-so is gonna be my next predecessor. And he says, the kingdom goes to the powerful. And then he died. Do you realize how bad that is? It's like pulling a grenade, okay, bye, and uh, that's him. Because uh, you got all these powerful generals and powerful parts of his army. And sure enough, pretty much right away, his generals started fighting over who got the empire. And they ended up sorting it out. And they gave the empire to the four generals, um, uh, you know, Ptolemy, Seleucus, uh, uh, Lysimachus, and, um, and um, Cassander. Those were the four generals that actually, they divided up the kingdom. Now, here's where the Bible prophecy gets cool. Daniel chapter eight, verse eight, the prophet said, therefore, the he goat waxed very great. And by the way, whoops, that's the funeral procession uh, that I forgot to show you. Uh, it was a big glorious thing. They took his body to Babylon first, and then they took his body to Alexandria in Egypt. And that's where he was buried in a golden coffin, solid gold coffin. They buried Alexander and it was quite a shindig. They even kind of fought over the coffin uh, in his body, uh, but it's a long story. Um, but there in Daniel chapter eight, verse eight, therefore he, the goat, waxed very great. Right there where that colon is, that's where Jaduah said, enough Fred, right there, closed up the scroll. He waxed very great, the end, and he didn't read. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Isn't that something? The Bible nailed this at, at this, you know, at the age of 33, he's at his peak, at his power. He just conquered the whole world and now he dies just like the Bible says, and for it or in place of it came up four notable horns, one toward the, uh, one's uh, horns toward the four winds of heaven, north, south, east, and west. And that's exactly what happened. The four generals came and they, you know, Cassander ruled Europe, uh, Lysimachus, Asia Minor, Ptolemy ruled Egypt, and Seleucus uh, took Babylon, Asia, and Syria. You say, Brett, Whoopie-doo, we didn't come to church to hear a history lesson. Um, and, and what does this have to do with us? Well, it, it does. We just did the groundwork for Wednesday night because um, two of these generals are gonna be a key player in the prophecies of Daniel, Daniel chapter eight. And we're gonna see how it leads us to and gives us an understanding about uh, a historical figure called Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, and it has to do with the Maccabean Revolt and Hanukkah and the Festival of Lights. And then it fast forwards to prophecies about the Antichrist, this coming world leader, even in our future yet. And it's powerful. You gotta know that history and these four generals to understand the rest of Daniel 8.
okay, Brett, I guess that's okay, but why'd you tell us all that stuff about Alexander? Because your teachers didn't at school. <laughs> they taught you about diversity and, uh, you know, you know, all those things that they didn't teach about Alexander. Um, no, there's actually more of a reason why I wanted to share with you about Alexander because our world, we love powerful leaders. We watch and we see and we hope for powerful leaders. We think our leader is gonna be the best. We get all hyped up, oh, this guy will save us. But one thing that world leaders have proven throughout all the centuries is they all die. Even if they're called the great, Alexander the Great died a sick man at 33 with no more worlds to conquer. And Alexander the not so great did some pretty brutal things. History doesn't even know how many people he slaughtered. Some say that he might be responsible for more deaths than anybody, maybe even more than Genghis Khan, more accurately pronounced Genghis Khan, believe it or not. But those guys were murderers. They killed a lot, a lot of people, tons of bloodshed for their own glory, for their own power and for their own prestige. And one thing we've learned as world leaders and the greatest of all, Alexander the Great, you might say, some argue he was the greatest leader uh, in the history of the world. But the reason this is important, I think, for us is, is I think we as Christians, maybe in this um, current season, we've lost sight of something. And, and, and it's a narrative that I think we're being misunderstood and maybe misunderstood for the right reason. I mean, we, we, maybe we've given reason for people to misunderstand. If you were to say, and let me just put a few words there that I think are funny words, but I'm gonna use them for this purpose. If you ask the average person in the world, what leader does the evangelical church support more than any other leader? The answer you'd get from most people today probably would be Donald Trump. It's pretty silent in here right now. <laughs> What's he gonna say? <laughs> don't talk about Donald Trump. Now you might say, don't talk about Donald Trump. And you, you could say it because you hate him or because you love him. And I don't care about that part of the topic. I just think people, we, we've, the church has perhaps misrepresented something, uh, whether you love them or hate them. I don't care what side of the aisle or what your political persuasions are, but the world says right now that there's a, Christianity in the church, a lot of people are interpreting whether it's valid or not, it's a perception that we should be aware of. And that is Donald Trump is not the savior of the world. He is a leader that came and went and he might come again. The second coming. <laughs> Brett, I think you got something there. No, no, no. We gotta be careful about this, you guys, because world leaders fail us. Uh, and they always do. They're just people, sinful people. Like I said, when we were talking about the election, somebody on social media says, Brett told us who to vote for. Never did. I told you, if you recall, and you can, all my teachings are online. You can, you can look them up and you can tell, show me. I never told you who to vote for. I said, if you vote, you're gonna vote for a sinner. Do you remember that? Whether it was Hillary or Donald, you know, or whatever. Uh, remember, we talked about this. Biden, you know, every time you vote, you're voting for a sinner. No matter who you're voting for. Reagan, you know, sinner. Um, and we have to remember that. But as it turns out, you and I as Christians, and, and man, I hope you have ears to hear because this is important. You and I as Christians, we have a leader. We have a king that we really can be happy about. 
We have a leader and a, and a ruler that is better than anybody and will never fail us. And as it turns out, it's not Donald Trump. I'd like to do a quick compare and contrast because some would argue Alexander the Great was one of the most powerful leaders in the history of the world. But let's compare Alexander to our leader, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Let's think about this for a second. Um, let's do some compare. I got a, a list here. We'll go through it as quickly as I can. Number one, Alexander was jealous of his father, Philip II, and he cried saying, dad, you're not leaving enough for me. What did Jesus do? Jesus always did the will of the father in heaven. Jesus was submitted to his father. John 8, 29, for I always do those things that please him. I love our king. He's not self-serving. He was serving the father, which is in heaven. Number two, Alexander, who was a man, made himself to be God. Jesus, who was God, made himself to be a man. What an irony. Um, Philippians chapter two, Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he, what did he do? Humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Man, our, our savior, um, he was God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God became a man. Jesus, who was God, became a man. Alexander, who was a man, tried to become God. And even the people kind of sniffed that out, said, uh, I don't think so. Um, number three, Alexander shed blood of millions for his own glorification, whereas Jesus shed his own blood for our salvation. Our king sacrificed all. Our king gave everything. Um, that we might have life. And he shed his own blood for our salvation. I love 1 Peter 2, 24. Um, Jesus, who shed his, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that's the cross, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes, the whippings on his back, um, we are healed. It was the blood of Jesus that washes us, that cleanses. His shed blood saved the whole world, didn't crush the whole world. If anybody had a right to crush the world, it's Jesus. And by the way, the second coming of our king, we're gonna see a crushing of the world. But our king is giving everyone an opportunity before that happens to be saved. That's something, that's a huge difference, by the way. Um, so you've got Alexander shed bloods of millions, Jesus shed his own blood. Number four, Alexander the Great, he wiped out the city of Thebes because of their rebellion. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because of their rebellion. Um, I love Matthew 23, 37, as he's weeping, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killed the prophets and stoned them which are sent to thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. In other words, Jesus said, I would have come and nurtured you and cared for you, but you didn't want that. They said, crucify him. We will not have this man rule over us. This is the kind of king we have. And Jesus didn't wipe out Jerusalem. He was weeping over Jerusalem. Number five, uh, compare, contrast. Alexander enslaved rebels. 30,000 slaves just from one city uh, of Thebes. Jesus freed slaves like you and me. We were enslaved to sin and death and hell 
But Jesus was, is the great liberator. That's why in John 8, 36, speaking of Jesus, if the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Man, our, our king that we can be excited about, even proud of, is not Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Hillary or Reagan or any of the, our king, man, he sets us free. He literally saves the world from bondage and hell and death. Number six, Alexander rode impressive Bucephalus, the horse. Um, but Jesus came in on a colt of a donkey. <laughs> what an irony. Um, Jesus could have come in on an F-15 or, or an Apache helicopter or, or, or something cool, but he comes clopping in on, not, not a donkey, that's bad enough, but a colt of a donkey, like a little donkey, cloppity, 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 he comes riding in Jerusalem. Um, why did he do that? Zechariah the prophet foretold this hundreds of years before. He said, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king cometh to thee. He is just, having salvation, lowly, humble, and riding upon an ass, upon the colt of a foal of an ass. Man, I love that about our king. Humble, meek, lowly. Number seven, Alexander killed Cleotus the black when he suspected betrayal. Jesus didn't retaliate when he was truly betrayed by Judas Iscariot. Uh, remember the betrayal kiss there as Judas was betraying Jesus? And did Jesus make his head explode? Could have, but he didn't. It says, and forthwith Judas came to Jesus and said, hail master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, friend, wherefore art thou come? And then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him and ultimately took him to the cross. Alexander the Great, number eight, was buried in a golden casket that they placed in a city with his own name on it, Alexandria of Egypt. But Jesus was placed in a grave in Jerusalem where he rose up from the grave and, uh, and is alive and lives today. Your and my king is alive and he will be alive. He's gonna to continue to be alive. He's conquered the grave and conquered death. Romans 6, 9, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. You say, well, good for him. Well, that's, that's good for you. Why? Well, it's, it's John's gospel, chapter 14, verse 19 says, yet a little while and the world seeth me no more, but you see me because I live, Jesus saying, it says, you shall live also. Because Jesus rose from the grave, when you and I die, we resurrect to eternal life for the Christian. Or you get raptured, either way, it's gonna be great. But all that to say, man, I love our king. Our king actually gives us real answers to the real issues of death. Um, I love this one. Um, Alexander the Great was tutored um, by Aristotle at the age of 12 while Jesus was tutoring the high priest in Jerusalem. Remember the story? You know, Mary and Joseph, they're on their way out of Jerusalem a couple days into their training. Hey, has anybody seen Jesus? Talk about bad parenting. They lost, <laughs> they lost the son of God. Um, <laughs> so they have to run back. Well, a few days later, Luke chapter two, verse 46 says, and it came to pass that after three days, they found Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem. And he was sitting in the midst of the doctors, the PhDs, the smarty pants. And he was both hearing them and asking them questions. And the idea of asking questions like, why is the sky blue? That's not what he was doing. The idea is, 
in, in, this, in the original language, it's asking provocative questions that they could not answer, is the idea. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Can you imagine this 12-year-old just blowing the minds of all these cerebral academics? That's what Jesus did. Uh, Aristotle, child's play compared to Jesus um, when he came and spoke to those guys. And man, I could just go on and on as we compare and contrast. You know, Jesus died. Jesus the Jew died at 33 um, and gave his life for the world. You know, the Greek, he, um, he died at 33 and he conquered the whole world, but only just died. The Greek died on a throne, the Jew died on a cross. The Greek shed the blood of many, the, the Jew died and shed his own blood for many. Um, you know, our king is exponentially better than any ruler that has ever walked the face of this earth. And we should be excited about that. I feel like the church gets more excited or upset or perturbed or freaked out by our present day leaders than we do understand that our kingdom's not of this world. We have heaven, we have the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Um, it is important to vote and it is important to care about our culture and our world, of course, of course. But, but our kingdom's not of this world. Set your affections on things above and not the things of this earth. The church of Jesus Christ needs to be careful to not become the church of some other world leader. The church of Jesus Christ needs to be the church of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because Alexander the Great, not so great. Trump, not so great. Biden, not so great. Hillary, not so great. Oprah, not so great. <laughs> Jesus is the one that we should rejoice in. If we could ever be happy, excited, proud, pumped about a potential leader that's coming, Jesus is the one we should truly be all about. And, and, and we need to change the narrative. Instead of the world answering the question, what is the evangelical church? Who do they worship? Who, do they, who are they most excited about? Who's the most important? Instead of us you know, focusing on some temporary leader that may come or go and we don't really know, um, forget that. Let's make sure that our narrative points to Jesus who's the author, the perfecter of our faith. It's all about Jesus. Let's keep the main thing the main thing, folks. I think there's been a lot of us that have been distracted with our social media and our news and, and all the political swirlings and all the trouble and COVID and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, climate change. We get all up into this stuff and we've forgotten that it's all about Jesus. Um, you know, any world leader in history or presently or in the future is a sorry exchange for Jesus. Let's keep Jesus the main thing, amen? amen? Lord, how thankful we are that we get to be people of a, of a kingdom that is not gonna pass away. Um, like your word says, like Daniel the prophet said, that the kingdom that's coming, the stone cut without hands is an everlasting kingdom. Lord, we get a sense that your kingdom is right around the corner. Lord, you give us the, the signs of the times and the seasons. And I'm so thankful, Lord, that we have that precursor of your coming, that we're looking forward to your return. Um, help us to keep our eyes on you. You tell us to be sober, be vigilant, to watch and wait for your return. And the faithful servant is busy doing the work of the kingdom, um, waiting for your come, Lord, coming. Lord, I pray that we would be the church that's focused on, on you. So bless us as we think about this, Lord. Give us ability to retain and even let your, your spirit change our heart and change our actions and our attitudes, Lord, if need be.
And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.